Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So, yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Not only knowing the names, but getting them right is um, a duty to other living things on this planet, I think. Um, certainly towards humans, at the very, very least. Um, but I would even say more so to the inhabitants of forests, if you're going to cut them all down, know, have the, have the decency to know which animals you're destroying their land, you know, not just call them brown birds or birds, you know, know that there's blue warblers there, know that, know that there, know that there's cerulean warblers there, know that there's pine siskins there, you know, know, um, that there's um, a bird called a titmouse there, you know, that kind of thing. Just have the decency to know what's around you. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. 
So the last few months, I've been living in Las Vegas, which is a new environment for me. And as spring has arrived, the scenery of my walks around the neighborhood has started to change. I've been noticing some plants that I recognize in a lot that are new to me, like wisteria, scotch broom, red yucca, golden disodia, a flower called blackfoot daisy. I heard this bird on my walk a couple days ago. It was up in the tree above where I was standing. And then I watched it fly away and it wasn't a bird that I recognized. It was sort of brown and it had these two white bars on its wings. And so when I got home, I spent a little time when I was supposed to be writing this intro, um, trying to figure out what the bird was. And I think it was a Northern Mockingbird. But if there are any birders out there who know the flora and fauna of Las Vegas better than I do, um, send me an email. Anyway, I've, I've been looking and listening and naming the world around me a little differently since reading and talking to Amy Nizuka Matatil, who is a poet and the author most recently of a New York Times bestseller, a beautifully illustrated collection of nature essays called World of Wonders which considers, like much of her other work, the natural world and who belongs in it and who gets to write about it. Um, One of the places our conversation wandered that I've been meditating on is Amy's thoughts about the way naming something, whether it's a plant, an animal, or a person, honoring it with its correct and particular name is a form of respect. It's also true to her poet identity, a way of calling out beauty in the world, as the names of things are so beautiful, wisteria, red yucca. I so enjoyed speaking with Amy, and I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. This episode is presented in partnership with the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas. Our gratitude to them. Here's Amy Nizuku Matatil. I've said before that, you know, at at heart, I'm kind of a a nerd, (laughs) Uh, not kind of, I am kind of a a nerd and um, I am a lot of a nerd. And the books that I grew up reading were science books and adventure books and um, stories of the outdoors and their observations, nature guides, you know, that kind of thing. But when I got to the back, of these books, I never saw anybody that even remotely looked at me. I was lucky to find, you know, authors like Rachel Carson or Annie Dillard, um, women, but certainly I never saw any people of color in the, in the books that I had. And I had, you know, um, I grew up in some rural areas, but I also had access to big university libraries. And, and it's, so it's not for a lack of looking, you know, um, I just simply didn't see that. And I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. So it's definitely better now. But I always wondered, like, where I cannot be the only one, like, where are the Asian Americans who love the outdoors, you know, that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I've just been so grateful to be able to that the publishing industry is much more inclusive. I think it still has a lot, a lot of ways to go, you know, but I think it's been much more inclusive. Um, to everybody's benefit, honestly, you know, um, my white husband from Kansas would be the first to say that this is an improvement um, for people like him, white, straight males who, you know, who also grew up with kind of, um, you know, the white, straight male view of the outdoors, you know, that kind of thing. And it, I think, I think it's just, it's beneficial to people of all backgrounds to see that who gets to talk about the outdoors um, should be a place of inclusivity. Um, and that's for race, that's for socioeconomic background, that's for um, abilities, physical abilities, you know, that kind of thing. So, 
yeah, I'm just happy to be kind of a part of that conversation. Yeah. Do you remember um, with one of the sort of early formative experiences of being in the outdoors that made you feel like, oh, this is this is for me. This is where, this is the place where I want to be, or this is something I'm deeply attracted to. Mm, Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know if there was one specific moment because I have so many moments and many of them are are chronicled um, in the book where I just Mm -hmm. had this sense of peace or this joy. But I know, for example, um, this is suburban Phoenix and it's very different now. Um, the, the last time I visited Phoenix, it was very much built up even more so. I mean, Phoenix is about, you know, I think doubled in size of what it was, I think maybe even tripled from what it was in the eighties. But, um, you know, when my father was off, he worked, um, he worked in a hospital as a respiratory therapist on the days that he was off, we would go hiking up, um, Oh, Camelback Mountain, South Mountain. The, 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 um, for those of people who don't know, Phoenix is in the center. It's in a valley, um, the Valley of the Sun, they call it, you know. And uh, I just, it was very palpable. That's where I also saw him so confident. And um, nobody talked down to him. Nobody made fun of his um, Indian accent, his Malayalam accent. Nobody, in fact, people were asking questions of him. Oh, you know, because they would... I think they would see him talking to his two young girls like, oh, this is an Akatia tree. There's a Chakwala lizard. You know, he knew the names of minerals and rocks and cacti. And so he was kind of an e- expert in this land that is not his homeland, you know, either. But, um, you know, contrasting that with observing, you know, these kind of idiot um, idiot kind of jerks, you know, cashiers, um, you know, who would, who would talk so down to him, like, I cannot understand you speak English, you know, when mm. he was speaking actual English, um, you know, and I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I, I was maybe even a little bit ashamed of my, of my dad, maybe not ashamed of my dad, but just embarrassed of the situation. Cause I could see him, this mighty, amazingly smart man you know every girl thinks they're you know um many girls think their dad is the smartest man alive you know um and then to see him so belittled and kind of um talk down to him that way the outdoors was a place for both my mom and my dad to just kind of be on their own um and confident in their own and nobody questioned them nobody asked what are you or what are you doing here? They just felt so comfortable there. And therefore, I think that comfort was transferred to my sister and I. Um, and I know, I say all of this, knowing full well that not everybody has that privilege. Not everybody. I mean, I, I have friends who never felt comfortable outside uh, for various reasons, you know. Um, but so I can only speak to my own experience is that for me, a child of an Indian man and a Filipino woman, the four of us, and we didn't have extended family here, you know, in the States. So the, it was the four of us. And we, that was, the outdoors was a place where nobody kind of made us feel unwelcome. Mm. How did your dad become so knowledgeable about the 
landscape around Phoenix? Was it something that he took up and studied when you all moved there? Was it something that he had already, you know, that he brought with him? Yeah, you know, I mean, he's um, a biologist, you know, he has a, you know, degrees in biology and botany. And, um, you know, that is a really good question. I think I just never questioned it, you know, as a little (laughs) girl, like, to me, that was just infinite wisdom of him. And I, and I think looking back now, it's obvious because it's not like he's had all this free time in the world. We were very much aware, um, you know, that he he was taking care of, he worked in a NICU unit. So um, very, very teeny, preemie, premature babies, helping them breathe. And that he could be called in at a moment's notice. So, you know, I remember, um, I don't know, um, birthday parties or whatever, he would be called in. There's no... Um, off time when it's babies struggling to breathe, you know, that kind of thing. So um, as a kid, I kind of always resented it, you know, I'm like, gosh, who are these babies? Don't they know it's my birthday? <laughs> you know, I mean, which sounds ridiculous, of course, but, uh, you know, um, absolutely. He was my, he's my dad and um, just super good company to be with. And him and my mom were just always, um, they had the best stories. They still have the best stories. And I, uh, all I know is at least with my dad, he read so much. That was really kind of his entertainment, you know, um, you know, dealing with these two, two elementary school girls that he didn't really know. One wanted to be Madonna. The other one, I think wanted to be a backup dancer and wham, um, (laughs) you know, and he's, an immigrant and, you know, and trying to deal with these very vibrant daughters. Um, I think his piece was reading up about the environment and then taking his, um, his vivacious daughters out, um, out on these hikes, out on these, you know, um, constellation, um, hunting, you know, trips to, you know, so that we knew the names for things. We knew the stars at such an early age. Um, and I'll be honest, I wasn't always thrilled about it. You know, many times I was like, dad, uh, I want to watch MTV or whatever, you know? Um, but that is, oh, it's just one of the, the biggest gifts of my life that didn't cost any money. It was just simply, um, going on these walks and having him, and if he didn't know the name of something, you know, this is before cell phones, he would um, just really try to get a good look at it. We, we didn't even have sketchbooks e- either, you know, just try to get a good look at it. Then we'd go to the library and try to look up that plant or that cactus or that mineral. And um, it was just always an adventure. There was no sense of, of him being bored. And therefore, I think one of his biggest legacies is letting his daughters not be bored you know I mean I, I don't I, I get kind of impatient with people who say like I'm I'm so bored I have no idea how how people can live like that but my, my parents drilled it into us about like only boring people get bored you know that kind of thing um and it, and all of this I had to be like but so-and-so has video games so-and-so has you know a Snoopy snow cone machine or whatever games from the 80s you know and stuff like that we were sent outside and we were absolutely expected to find our own fun using, you know, I mean, it sounds so sad, but using sticks and stones and whatever we can find outside. Oh, here's an interesting caterpillar. Here's a, a garter snake or whatever. You know, that was our entertainment. And um, 
I'm so grateful for that, actually. Yeah. You write, you know, so beautifully in World of Wonders about the outdoors, whether it's a plant or a bird oh. or, you know, a landscape as as a site of peace and of knowledge and of discovery and of authority. Um, it's which and it, so it was just striking to me that you used the word peace like it was a peaceful place it was his peace um being outside and it reminded me of a the passage in your book where you describe wishing that your front yard when you were living in phoenix had a giant i think it was a saguaro cactus Mm -hmm. like a neighbor's did yeah um and i i would i guess i'm just wondering like what parts of that landscape to you felt like they really caught in your, in your heart or in your mind? It's, it's hard for me to pin down one thing from the kind of the suburban Arizona landscape, but I, you know, because I also feel a kinship with um, a landscape in Kansas and I feel a kinship. I, I absolutely do have tangible, tangible memories of um, talking to cardinals, for example, in the suburbs of Chicago and um, and Western New York. This wasn't in the book, but um, you know, uh, this is right around the time where it's maple syrup season. You know that kind of thing. But I would say um, something that still holds true today. Um, anytime I visit Arizona, it's just that pure, pure sunshine. You know, this is um, before I think you know, sadly, the before the warnings of skin cancer and stuff. So there was, we knew to use sunblock, but I absolutely remember, it sounds almost quaint now, my sunblock was like SPF 10, like, which, is, <laughs> which basically does nothing, you know, essentially, you know, now. And, and this is, again, you have to, the culture was just so different then. Um, it was eat your breakfast. I'm talking about like summer and winter breaks, eat your breakfast, go outside, swim at somebody's house. If not, if you didn't have a pool of your own and, you know, these are, these are not like super well-off kids. This was absolutely middle, 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 I guess, to upper, upper middle class, um, kids, but just so many people had pools and in, in suburb, in the suburbs. And, um, like many of us, you know, looking back, I know that this was again, still at an age when divorce was kind of, um, uh, kind of a sad and hidden away word. Um, and you know, many of my kids or many of my friends, um, were dealing with divorce and we knew what it meant, but it was absolutely kind of, um, there was kind of maybe a a stigma attached to it, not for me, but I think just society in general. So us kids, we became kind of our, our own families to each other, our chosen families, although we didn't have that vocabulary, you know, and we just spent these days just outside and finding new bugs or, oh, look at the seeds of this plant or check out the spider or, you know, just riding our bikes everywhere. And I don't know, I mean, there we didn't have them, but I always was um, jealous of that and that hot, hot sunshine and then seeing kind of the glint of, of cacti um, that kind of dulled green glint, of, um, in the hot, hot sun of the cacti that, that to me is, is like peak elementary school because <laughs> it was also a danger, right? We would have to, you know, if we're running around, Oh, don't, 
don't fall if you're on your bikes and, and chasing each other around. Don't crash into the cactus. I mean, that's huge compared to my friends, you know, here or my, my own kids who never have to worry about crashing their bikes um, into something, you know, um, like a cactus. If they fall, it's just the street, you know. Um, so it was something both exquisite beauty to me, but also such danger. So I think just cacti in general, there's too many to list, but saguaro, acatillo, um, just even the cute stumpy barrel bush cactus. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'd have to say cactus. When did you become somebody who uh, maybe like your dad and definitely also like your mom? You write about your mother being a really avid, you know, gardener and cultivator um, who beca- who sort of became, you know, a person who loved the outdoors and wanted to know the names of things and wanted to to write about it. When did mm-hmm. when did that kind of take when did you uh, give up? give up wanting to be Madonna and start thinking about wanting to be a poet, you know, a poet of, of, of the world, of the earth. <laughs> well, let's be clear. I think I always still want to be this eighties pops, the eighties version of Madonna, not, not, um, prison, but, but, um, there's something about just eighties glam pop that always will, um, appeal to me in some way, shape or form. And, and that's partially, you know, kind of similar to what we were talking about because I never saw anybody that looked like me like that. You know what I mean? Like I too, you know, I mean, I just like Walt Whitman says, do I contain multitudes? Very well. I contain multitudes. You know, I wanted all along there to be like an Asian American woman depicted in movies or TVs or books who loved the outdoors, but also liked glitter and, you know, sparkly Mm. nails or, you know, um, playing around with eyeshadow and who had crushes on boys, but also knew how to garden. You know, I mean, it seemed like for, for so much of my growing up, you had to be one or the other and not both, you know? And so I think part of my threshold is just saying that you can contain multitudes um, uh, with the outdoors, that you don't have to be like, for example, I'm not vegetarian. Um, I try to be, you know, um, many times, but I'm not vegetarian. And for, for many people, that's in direct conflict with their love of the outdoors. And, and I'm here to say it doesn't have to be. It, like There's space for all kinds of people to appreciate the outdoors, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I guess <laughs> I thought the, the first part of your question made it sound to be like, um, when did you become your parents? <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> There was a horror moment, like, no, no, I love my parents, but I don't want to, you know, um, you know, um, Sorry. I, no, no, no. I say that lovingly. Um, I, I adore them. And especially now we're in the middle of the pandemic. I miss them immensely. They're, I'm so happy they've been able to get their second doses of the, um, of the vaccine. So I hope to be able to them, see them soon, but you know, there's, I'm here in Mississippi and we have no, my husband and I, there's, there's no point in sight yet for our vaccine. So it's just been, you know, you're catching me on a good day, but generally my day is filled with sadness because I miss them so, so, so much. Um, and I guess to go back to your question, I don't know. I, that's just kind of always been the lifestyle that they have and the values that they've kind of instilled in with me. And absolutely. I could say, for example, 
in college uh, when I didn't have their direct influence around um, and when I was admittedly mostly um, indoors or mostly in kind of a in a situation that didn't really allow for much time outdoors. Um, it's not like that ever went away fully, but I absolutely wasn't as active or appreciative of the outdoors then. And, um, but I think that's, abs- um, my friends will attest for as long as they've known me, you know, I've, I've been that person that almost drove off her bike, you know, <laughs> or crashed her bike because I was looking at a bird or, you know, that kind of thing. My, my husband, well, not so much now, but before pandemic time would, you know, part of his goodbye to me when I'd be on the road is be careful of birds. And it, and that means, oh, not, not to stay away from birds, but he knows darn well that I, I have come close to crashing my car if I've seen a beautiful flock or a bird that just catches my eye. <laughs> and so I, I have always kind of appreciated that and wanting to find names. And, you know, I see it with my students now is that when they have names, for the plants and animals around them. When they get to know that a tree is called, that they pass by all the time on the way to the student union is called Catalpa. And it's the champion tree of Mississippi, for example, meaning the largest one on record. Um, or that the birds that they're seeing bop, bop alongside them on the way to class are pine warblers, not just brown birds, you know, that kind of thing. They start... I mean, I see it across the board. They start having uh, a connection to them. They have a tenderness um, towards these creatures and these plants because they have a name for it. It doesn't become this generic bird or this generic plant. And so, yeah, it's super important to me. I didn't have the kind of the language of the vocabulary for this now, but it's why I cringe when people make fun of my name. You know what I mean? It's so easy I get that it's a long last name and I get that, you know, I don't mind when people ask me how to pronounce it. What I cringe about is when I hear people make fun of names or, you know, we saw in the most recent election, people almost, um, not almost, I think they, it was very purposeful, them mispronouncing Kamala Harris's name, you know, um, Mm -hmm. once you other something, you don't have to feel tender towards it. You don't have to be accountable towards it anymore. I mean, it's, it be, (laughs) There's so many daily examples of that. You know, when you don't when you don't get to know that there's a boy named Pedro on the other side of this planet or or Kazim or um or Mohammed, it's easy and if you don't get to know that oh the little boy who's 8 years old named Mohammed has a mother who tucks up who brings up um his favorite blanket just above his chin the way he likes it um, and who has a craving for, you know, American style waffles, it's easy to send bombs over to them to destroy their land. It's easy to call ice on people, you know, um, when you don't get to know them, when you, when they don't have names registering for you, you know what I mean? That, that kind of thing. So, um, you see it all the time with the say her name, you know, movement from the summer and beyond and before the summer, um, not knowing the names of things and people show uh, allows you to be desensitized and not, um, not have that care towards them, you know? So I, I think absolutely having not only knowing the names, but getting them right 
is um, a duty to other living things on this planet, I think, um, certainly towards humans at the very, very least. Um, but I would even say more so to the inhabitants of float forests. If you're going to cut them all down, know, have the, have the decency to know which animals you're destroying their land, you know, not just call them brown birds or birds, you know, know that there's blue warblers there, know that, know that, or know that there's cerulean warblers there, know that there's pine siskins there, you know, know um, that there's um, a bird called a titmouse there, you know, that kind of thing. Just have the decency to know what's around you. Yeah. Oh, I really love that. And it, the, the thought that I'm having is that, that that concept feels very enacted in your writing practice, which is so much about naming and describing and making real through language mm-hmm. specific creatures and plants and inhabitants on the earth. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not lost on me hearing you talk that the chapter, the essays in this, in this most recent book are just the name are just names are just like an act of naming over and over and over again some mm. creature or some plant that you want to hold up and make us give our attention to yeah 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 i mean um i think you you pretty much nailed it right there you know and my students um if they're listening to this they'll they'll be giggling and rolling their eyes cuz they know i mean i circle like don't just say flower. Give me the name of a flower. Let us see it. Let us name it. Put that name on your tongue, you know, and, and delight in it. And, um, you know, that's part of the delight of reading poetry is that it's such, it, it is an oral tradition, you know, so your, your mouth should feel, a del- even if it's a sad poem, your mouth should feel the crack, pop and sizzle of different words and different names on your tongue, you know, um, why waste that opportunity? You know, there's so much. And again, the poem does not need to be about joy or happiness, but the, um, there's so much pleasure to be gained with the words. You know, you, you meet a little kid who discovers saying the word broccoli, for example, and just says broccoli, broccoli. Um, and you can't help but smile seeing them discover that musicality of language. So yeah, it's absolutely something that I pay attention to in my work and and hopefully in my students' work as well. Yeah, I mean, and like not to mention those names, as you're saying, like they're beautiful. Like it's, it's a, yeah. those are beautiful, beautiful sounds and beautiful words. And they like dragon fruit or a cara cara, or I'm just, you know, <laughs> looking at your table of contents, you know, yeah. bonnet yeah. macaques. Um, uh, like that's great language. Yeah. Um, and it helps it also does, I think, help make real like, oh, no, this isn't just like some random flower. This is a particular flower. You know, its existence is real and it's specific and it's not just a generic uh, or invisible thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the way that your writing enacts this this other idea that you've been talking about so beautifully, which is the seeing seeing someone like yourself in nature seeing someone mm. like yourself writing about nature that you know you sort of came up as somebody who loved the natural world and loved to read about the natural world but didn't see yourself um represented or reflected in those spaces did you 
very directly say one day, I fine, I will, I will write myself into that space since nobody's mm-hmm. done it yet. Or was that something that happened subconsciously or accidentally? So I had been working on these here and there, but it was always kind of like spinning my wheels. I tell you when I, this, I absolutely know. Um, when the wheels stopped spinning for me, it was kind of like a flashbulb moment was during the 2016 election or kind of like leading up to that. Um, you know, I mean, taking a look at the news from that time, I'm talking specifically fall of 2016. Um, there was so much hate. There was so much divisiveness. And there was also so much othering that I had to explain. And and, and maybe I was fumbling a little bit um, to my kids who were six and nine at the time, you know, um, there was so much othering of people. And, um, you know, I think it was a very palpable moment where I said, I, you know, and, and many other writers had different responses to this. So I'm, I'm not saying, um, you know, I'm not being prescriptive or anything. This was just what me as a mother who was at the end of her rope with having to explain the b- bad behavior, what I would consider bad behavior of gr- so-called grownups to my kids and, and to boys who um, kind of read, I think, to the general public as white boys. You know, I think uh, discerning I would see that they're half, half Asian, you know, um, but as a mother, I took such, oh, I, I was so full of rage. The only thing I knew how to do was to fight back with writing about love. Specifically, I had two people in mind when I was writing this book, two people alone. And that was my six-year-old boy and my nine-year-old boy. And I didn't know, you know, I mean, it was not, trust me when I say I was not thinking, um, ooh, what does the New York publishing world think of this? What is, uh, what would an agent say? How do I sell this? I literally was just like, the only thing I can do is write a document of love and um, a testament for my sons to say, hey, during this time, during this crazy time that, um, if they remember their parents speaking in hushed tones about the government or things like that, here's what their mom was doing. And it was um, a letter for them, um, a love letter to the planet, but really it was, it was for a six-year-old boy and a nine-year-old boy who had a lot of questions. Um, And so I started this, that was, that was for me the only way that I could um, see an end point to this is that I had to get this out there. Um, if for nothing else, just to let my boys have a record of like, oh, here's all the things that mom loved. And um, they're not so strange after all. I I was very purposeful in including animals and plants that they had never seen, that I had never seen. Like I've never seen a cassowary in person, Um, as well as animals that they had a lot of experience with, like a monarch butterfly or like fireflies, you know? So I did not want this to be a compendium of like, because I could have done that, you know, look at all these weird, strange animals that only scientists and Amy knows, because <laughs> you know? I'm a big nerd. You know, I did not want to do that. I It was very purposeful that I chose animals that maybe were a little unfamiliar to the average person, maybe, um, certainly to my son, and then animals that they were familiar with, you know, so that it could be, and, and for me as well, it could show that 
um, even someone who has read about and been outside for all her life um, had room to learn too, that the learning never stops, no matter what degrees or no matter what, how many books you, you write, um, you will mess up. And as I did in letting an octopus die in my hands, um, uh, as I wrote about in the book, and Mm -hmm. that is one of my greatest sadnesses. It's the creature that is one of the most near and dear to me. And it wasn't purposeful. It was absolutely an accident. And I could have easily left that out too. Um, but I wanted to showcase that these are, these are mistakes that mom made, you know, but here's how she is learning and here's what she, um, hopes to never have happened again, you know, that kind of thing. And there's still things to learn and there's still more questions to be asked. Um, but I absolutely wanted to start this project and end. So it starts with um, a note of, uh, of a happy memory of my sister and I um, being in awe of my mom working so hard in Western Kansas, being one of the only Asian Americans in that area. Um, and it ends with a note, um, of love. I think the, one of the last words is the word love actually. So, um, so that was really kind of my light bulb moment. I was so sick of the news othering people that were not like them. Specifically, I was sick of, um, people who were running for government, you know, um, othering other cultures, othering other abilities that weren't the male, white, straight, dominant kind of, um, I was just sick of that othering and I wanted to turn towards love with animals and plants. I wanted to ask you what the next thing that you want to name or love or make visible on the page is. Mm, That is so good. You know, I'm always a little bit uh, maybe superstitious about naming what I'm writing quite kind of too explicitly because, you know, then and people sure. hold me to it, you know, and I don't like that yeah. extra pressure. Like, hey, I thought you said you were working on X, Y, and Z, you know. All I will say is that um, I am researching a lot about, um, how shall I say, um, about snakes. <laughs> snakes. Ooh. And um, I'm, I'm leaning into writing um, more for children these days. So, um, so that's been exciting. And, uh, but I, you know, I'm still that nerd who, you know, um, give me a cup of coffee and a book on snakes. And, uh, I am a happy, happy person, you know, um, which, and I, and I don't want them as pets. I just, I just find them fascinating right now. So who knows if I'm, if I'm, if that will be manifested on the page right now, but that's what I'm reading. And often what I'm reading finds its way eventually, you know, it might be next week, it might be two years from now, but that's what I'm doing. And, and I think just, I hope in all my work, I hope in, in every, every subject that I write about, um, and every audience that I write about for kids or for, for grownups or, or both, I hope the commonality is that people see how wonder can manifest in how you, you can let open yourself up to being a little bit more vulnerable, you know, to be, to have wonder in your life. Hopefully when people are reading my books, they get that reignited sense of wonder about what, what is it on this planet that they're curious about? Even just naming, can you name four different clouds? You know, that's free. That doesn't cost any money. You know, that just takes maybe a book, maybe computer access if you want to look up things that way. But 
challenge yourself to get to know the names of things within like a two mile radius of wherever it is you live, you know? Um, and that I know it's tough right now because we're inside, but you can look out a window and try to name what kind of clouds you're seeing today. If there are clouds around you, you know, um, because it takes vulnerability and kind of love to do it, love for yourself, but, um, because I, and love towards others. And what I mean by that is once you have wonder, once you let in wonder into your life, you can't help but want to share that with others. Like, Oh my gosh, have you seen this amphibian? It's called an axolotl. It's pink. It looks like it's smiling, you know, that kind of thing. Like you don't want to keep that inside. You have to share it towards others. So my hope is that whatever, um, my next project ends up being is that that sense of wonderment is there, but also that it's carried to the people reading it. And that person shares it with somebody else. And that person shares it with somebody else. Um, I just want people to be curious. You see that there's so many problems on this planet when people stop being curious about things, about people. Um, and I think it really comes down to just staying curious. Um, and it's free to do that. <laughs> it's free to, to be curious. <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.